On today's More Than a Test, we have Ron Berger. Um, if you've been a district leader, a school leader, any kind of leader in education in the last couple of years, you've definitely heard this name. You've probably read Leaders of Their Own Learning. Uh, what makes Ron Berger so amazing is not just the curriculum he's helped put together, not just the resources he gives to teachers, and often they're open source and free for teachers, but also, you know, what he talks about is we really have to believe in our kids and believe that they can learn, whether this is a rural setting, an urban setting, wherever our kids are bringing to school that we believe that they can rise to the occasion and meet our standards. Ron, thank you so much for being here today. Laura, thank you for hosting me. We're, I'm really, I've been really excited to talk to you because as I was telling you before the show, um, I recently reread your article from The Atlantic around, you know, coming back after COVID and I, and I read it and it resonated so much that I was sending it to people everywhere. Um, and I think your big message was that we really need to see students based on their strengths and not their deficits. Tell me why that article meant so much for you to write and why you needed to put it out there. Yeah, I was really worried, Laura, that in, I mean, the COVID set everyone back. Absolutely. Um, it was a really hard time for the whole world and it was a really hard time for students, but it was disproportionately hard for students who didn't have a good workplace at home, who didn't have technology at home, who didn't have a network of connections and friends, who didn't have the family support, uh, whose parents couldn't lean on other people easily to, to be there for them. So um, it, it, there was a great danger, which came true really, of creating even a broader opportunity gap for kids who didn't have resources at home. And I saw a lot of it on, in virtual settings of kids who were, they, they didn't have their own bedroom and their own desk and their own computer. I mean, they were in a crowded apartment with like, how do you do home learning in that? And a lot of people, I think, for all the right reasons, felt like when those kids come back to school, we have to make sure everyone catches up. And I don't think they were aware that if you get that, we can fix them. They're broken. We can fix them. If we get that mindset, that, it, that the message kids get is that you're a broken kid and we have to get you to catch up before you do anything that's grade level and interesting and challenging for you. First, we have to do all the catch up of the year or two that you missed. And that was only going to widen the opportunity gap for kids. And it did um, because that remediation has to be built into exciting, challenging work. It can't be you don't get to do anything grade level or above until you've totally caught up. You know, it's so interesting you say that. Um, I think what you're most well known for is your work around social emotional learning and leadership for children. And um, I used to work at a school. I was a leader at a school that was... Um, heavily, uh, a lot of the population was gifted students, really academically strong students. And a deep belief we held was that social emotional learning and social emotional work is best done through challenging academics, not as this like side extra thing, but through challenging academics. And I think that some of what you're saying really resonates with me is that I, I think that is important that we can't just say, you'll get, you'll get to do the good stuff when you get there. Um, and I think that that is exactly what happened. Tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, it, I always think of social emotional learning as a part of character. And I think of character not just as moral character, as ethical character, but as the character that keeps you resilient and, and, and strong and capable of doing things in the world that you, people can depend on you, people can believe in you to do high quality work. That's your character too. Um, when people say you have a sterling character, it doesn't mean just that you have a good moral compass. It means that you people can depend on you to be on time and do great work. 
that's what we have to to lean into. It's a kid's potential to like, we believe in you to do high quality work. And if we're going to help their character, we've got to give them challenging work that shows we believe in them. You know, one of the sentences that you said, one of the, that I read in the article was that we are, we have a danger of categorizing kids by their deficits. And I feel like we are seeing a lot of that, that, you know, how far behind is who you are. Um, so tell me, like, first of all, are you seeing that? What does it look like? And what can we, do, we be doing differently? Yeah, well, there was a great danger of kids returning to school and immediately you assess them for their deficits. How far behind did you get in mathematics? How far did you behind to get in reading? And then assigning kids to full-on remediation in those areas. And it's all met with good intent. The people who are doing that mean the best for those kids. What they don't remember is that when you're a kid who's always in the deficit group for one year, and then usually two years, three years, four years, you develop a self, an identity that you're not good at mathematics. You're not good at reading. You're not good at school. And you start checking out. And by the time you become an adolescent, school is not the place where you think you shine. And, you know, the opposite is saying, we believe in you. We think you can do high level reading work. We think you can do high level mathematics work. We know you missed a bunch of things last year. And so we're going to give you high quality, high level work to do. And when there's gaps, we're going to give some extra boosts for you. We're going to bring you back a little bit. We're going to get you some extra support in the areas that you missed. But we're not going to stop you from doing work that, that's at your grade level or even well beyond your grade level because we believe you have that potential. It's a very different message and builds a different identity in kids. Okay, so tell me this. So um, the, the company that I work for, Amira, we have a product that children read out loud to. We have an AI tutor that children read out loud to, and they're constantly reading at their level. So what we, the people who love us the most seem to be third grade teachers. And what third grade teachers say, especially after coming back from COVID, they had kids come into their classroom, some reading at third grade level, some like a kindergartner, and some like a fifth grader. And Amira gave them the opportunity for all the kids to read at their level. But when I talk to those teachers, they are just completely at a loss of what to do for a kid, for a third grader who's reading at a kindergarten level. So can you give me like a concrete example of how that teacher can give that student third grade work and also the supports they need? Yeah. Um, I, I like your push on that. Um, it's, and there's, I don't want to be glib. There's no easy answer to that question, but I would say it, it's very tempting to say all of that struggling readers work should be at her level. So she's reading at a K-1 level. She's in third grade. You should only give her work at a K-1 level. I don't agree with that. I think some of the time she needs to be operating in work that's comfortable for her. Absolutely. Some of the time she needs to feel the winds of being able to do that. And she needs a whole lot of help in basic phonemic awareness and phonetics and decoding work. She needs to understand how language works, especially if she's at a K-1 level. I mean, that's when you build the foundations for that. But I think that all kids deserve to grapple with work that's at their grade level or above without the expectation that it will be easy for them. But that grappling is something you grow your brain by grappling. And so having work that that student, along with her colleagues in class, are trying to make sense of hard text can change her self-image to, I'm a a struggling reader, but I can also contribute to my class in ways I, I have strengths that I can put into this. I can see a future for myself being competent in this. I'm not always in the remedial space. So it's not a binary. It's not like she should never be doing work that's at what a comfortable level for her. And it's absolutely the case that kids need the foundations of reading when they're starting, especially K-1. 
um, I mean, you picked a particularly important, you know, time because if right. you don't build those foundations, you're in trouble. Right. Um, but I also think that every kid deserves grade level work some of the time in settings where they can grapple together productively to see I'm capable of more than I thought I was. What I love about what you're saying is like, I, as a child, as a student, I don't have to contribute necessarily to be the reader of the group, but I can contribute to this group. I can read what is uh, you know comfortable for me and then also have ideas with my team. And I think what's important is that they see both opportunities to be comfortable and to stretch. And I think that's really valuable. And you answered that question by starting by saying like, I appreciate your push. And I feel comfortable pushing with you, Ron, because I know you've done so many, many th amazing things and you do something amazing now. You're the, is it, am I saying this right? The chief academic officer at EL Education? Um, I've, I'm now called senior advisor at EL Education because I'm getting old, you know. <laughs> okay, so first of all, tell me what the chief academic officer looks like and what does a senior advisor look like? Yeah, so chief academic officer, I was in charge of our publications. We have a dozen books that we have out there. We have more than 400 instructional videos that are all open source. And now we have this open source K-8 ELA curriculum that's used by more than a million students right now. So for a while, my oversight was our intellectual and academic vision and pedagogical vision. Um, that was on particular teams. Now as senior advisor, I work with all the different teams in our nonprofit, sort of supporting their work. We work directly with schools and districts and we produce open source um, high quality resources for, for teachers everywhere. So I'm a little surprised to hear ELA curriculum because when I think of EL, I always think of the emotional learning curriculum. Yeah. Um, and I think what, what was the book that you had? I know that I like the lead leading their learning or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Leaders of their own learning. Yeah. Yes. I used to love that book. I still love that book, but I used to use it as a principal quite a bit. Um, so tell me, is, is has the has the mission of EL changed quite a bit? What are you all into now? I'm surprised to kind of hear that it's it sounds like it's going a little more academic, less emotional learning. Is that true? Oh, I would actually say it hasn't changed at all because okay. I think we never separated character from academic learning. As okay. you framed that earlier, Laura, I think we have always seen academic learning and character development as fused. They work best when you're doing them together. And I think what changed was our scale strategy. We worked, we work with about 150 individual schools. We produce books. We have a dozen books and we produce all these open source materials and videos. Um, but we were reaching tens of thousands of kids that way. Right. We then um, got the contract to produce the first uh, common core based curriculum for New York State. It was called Engage New York, that process. Yep. And it was so successful that we ended up getting funding to create a, a K-8 to open source ELA curriculum that embeds character and embeds social justice work right in the curriculum. So it's an ELA curriculum, but there are character targets and character lessons built right into it. It's, you know, we don't separate the two, actually. But that's, that curriculum is used by about a, more than a million students now. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, let me ask, I'm going to ask you the same question in two different ways. The first way I'm going to ask it is, when you think about your decision to embed social emotional learning, and I'm not even going to say embed, I'm going to say to sew together social emotional yeah, learning good. and academics. Yeah. Tell me, I, I think I've read some of the research, but many of our listeners haven't, and you probably even know this better than I do. Like, what's the, what's the 
you know, like why, why did you make that decision? Why are they sewn together? Yeah. Because if character education or social emotional learning is something that happens on Tuesday afternoon between one and two, when a, you know, a person comes in, the school counselor comes in and does a lesson on how to collaborate, it, it has a very minimal uh, adoption in the kids' hearts and minds in terms of who am I as a learner. If when you're learning how to read, you're also learning how to collaborate with others and how to take risks and how to show academic courage and, and ab- academic kindness to your friends who are learning how to read. Then you grow up learning as an academic human being, building your academic identity in fusion with your character identity. It's like, I'm learning how to read as I'm helping my friends learn how to read. I'm learning how to collaborate while I learn how to read. I'm learning how to show academic courage while I'm learning how to read. Like you're you, you feel like this is part of my identity too. I'm a good uh, scholar and a good person. I'm, I'm building those at the same time. So the targets for our lessons are reading standards at the same time as character standards. Okay, so then let me ask it the other way. And you kind of alluded to this. Why do you think as schools and districts, often it turns into us social emotional learning is something we do from one to two on a Tuesday, right? Despite most of the research showing it's, it's best when it's sewn together. And we know yeah. that like in your own identity, we all know this, right? If I want to get better at something, I don't do it from one to two on a Tuesday. I do it in everything that I do, right? right. So why, why is it that schools kind of, I don't know if the default to the one to two on a Tuesday setting so often? Yeah, well, I don't blame schools and districts for this because in this country, schools and districts are held accountable for only one thing, and that's test scores. And it's test scores in just a few subjects, not test scores in everything. So schools feel like they are ranked and districts are ranked only by test scores. The pressure is intense on them. And if they're not performing well, the pressure is even more intense on them. So anything that a school or a teacher or a school leader interprets as tangential to our academic success on those test scores is really hard to prioritize. It's not their fault. It's what they're being held accountable for. It's how they're judged. And I think the mistake we are making is not understanding that when kids have more academic courage and academic collaboration and academic kindness and academic curiosity and ingenuity when those character skills are built into their reading lessons and math lessons, they do better on assessments. Um, And I mean, we are working, there's many districts in the country, for example, that are using our open source curriculum. Um, You know, all the students in Oakland and Detroit and Richmond and uh, Raleigh and Charlotte and, and Bronx District One. Bronx District One just had the, and Detroit just had like the best growth in their test scores in ELA that they've ever had. And it's because partly because they're using a curriculum where kids are building academic courage and and confidence and collaboration. All right. So I want to dial in on what you said, because originally what I thought you heard, I heard you say was we should be getting rid of the assessments, particularly these overemphasize of math and English assessments. But what now I'm hearing you say is no, we should buy into like the assessments will go up if you instead use curriculum or use materials that sew together social emotional learning, that we don't start thinking of math as kind of like this over here thing and reading over here and emotional stuff over here. I'm curious, like, what do you really, if if you could be like the head of the department of education for the entire country, what would, around assessments, what would you change? It's a fair question. 
So first I will say, I was trying to make both points. First, <laughs> that it's wrong that we judge schools and teachers and, and students by only right. one tiny reductive measure, which is not how we succeed in life. But the second was that even given that reality, if you focus on kids building their character as they're building their scholarship, you're going to be more successful even in that reductionist realm. It's not a mistake to build academic character as you're building academic skills. Um, but if I were in charge, I just got back from working with schools in England. Uh, England has, has a national inspectorate, Ofsted, that comes and visits every school. Wow. And they don't just look for test scores. They look at how safe kids are in the buildings physically and emotionally, how clean the building is, how many opportunities kids have to do arts and sciences and technical education. They look at what staff development is like and what staff are modeling with kids. They look at how the school relates to the community. And the school gets scores, a holistic score of school quality. Now, when you think people would hear that in the United States and say, we can't afford to do that. We can't do a whole school quality review of every school. How could we afford that? They do it in, in the entire country. The, the England, every single school goes through that. Now, I'm not saying they love it there. I mean, they hate the inspectorate, <laughs> right? They, nobody likes Ofsted, the inspectorate. But it's so much better than judging schools by one me narrow measure because any parent who sends their own children to a public school in America cares about a lot more than test scores. They want their kid to go to a safe school, a clean school, a school where their kid feels safe physically, safe emotionally, where their identity is affirmed, where they're not bullied, where they're not treated badly because of their race or their background or their income or their body shape or anything like that. And they want their kid to be excited about learning and passionate and get and want to become a lifelong learner and have career options, learn how to get along with other people, learn how to be a good human being. Every parent wants that for their kid. Right. So why are we only judging schools by this one narrow measure? It's a big mistake as a nation, I think. Well, and I'll tell you, the way this plays out, you know, Amira is only a reading product. And the way it has recently played out in the science of reading world is we got really heavily focused on phonics, which is great. We all know yeah. kids need phonics. Absolutely. Um, and, and learning how to read. And, and, and we saw a lot of emphasis on, on literacy instruction. But what we've now seen is that kids don't have the background knowledge to understand what they're reading. They don't right. have the vocabulary because those things are developed through experience, right? right. They're developed from being out in the world and seeing things. Um, I just had this amazing experience with a, a little second grade girl, great reader, reading a story about Thomas Alva Edison, reading perfectly. And then all of a sudden a question popped up and said, what, you know, this word genius has come up in this, twice in this story. What does it mean? And she chose the answer as it's a kind of light bulb. This girl could read perfectly, read the word genius two different times, yeah. had not a clue what the word meant. And it's, yeah. it's not out of the realm for her. And, it, and it's just, we're seeing this over and over and over again, that if we focus too hard on one thing and we miss these opportunities to enrich their lives, it, it plays out eventually, right? Like it catches up to them. So I, I think what you're saying is, is really valuable. Um, okay. Let me ask you this. You talk a lot, again, we talked about this, um, about this, this concept between deficits and potential. Uh, and Susan Enfield was on our podcast not that long ago. And one of the things she says that is that every principal should know every child in their building by name, strength, and area for growth, which I think is really, and strength comes before area for growth. But I also recently heard research that for every time we give a child somewhat negative feedback, it takes four positive things to be said for them, for their self-esteem to continue to grow. So it's a one to four ratio, which 
as a mother, even I can say is hard to get to. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious, like how, how, how do we reconcile this idea of we have to give kids feedback, they have to grow. And then also what it means to really be potential driven, not deficit driven. Um, great. So let me start by saying I endorse the idea that a school leader should know every student in her building and that all the school leadership team should. And that it, being an anonymous student is just not a helpful thing that students look through the cracks everywhere if they're not well known. Um, and it's good for a, a leader to be able to know positive things that they could say to each student and an area for growth may be good too. That's a stretch. I think if, if you're a, a, a leader of a small elementary school, it's very different than if you're a leader of a comprehensive high school. I'm not sure you're going to know every student's strengths and weaknesses. I think more important than that is that every student in the building should be able to articulate her own strengths and weaknesses. And that's something that you can't find easily. If students haven't been taught to be reflective about where are they strong and where are they grappling and they haven't had to present that through student-led conferences or passages or presentations of learning to their families, to their community, they're not used to saying, here's my areas of strength, here are my areas that I need to work on, this is what I'm doing to get to those areas. That ownership is even more important than the adults being able to say anything to them. It's the student ownership of their learning. I'm on a path and these are the things I'm really good at right now. And these are the things I need to work on. That's the most important thing. And if you think that's a crazy stretch, ask any student who's serious about soccer or dance or horseback riding or music. And you say, what are your strengths or weaknesses as a musician or as a dancer or as a soccer player or as a little league softball, whatever the subject is, that student will be able to say, here are all the things I'm really strong in and here are all the things I'm, I really need to work on because they own their growth in those areas. Whereas in school, they say, well, I got good grades in this or I got a good test score in that. They haven't owned their own pathway to growth. So that's even more important than the adult pathway. To, I'm sorry, I got sidelined on that. No, um, this has been great. I'm, I'm honestly like getting goosebumps as someone who was a teacher for a long time. And I know you were too, like I'm picturing one of my students standing in front of me, telling me their strengths and weaknesses and just like how powerful that is. Like, I'm actually like, oh, I wish I could go back in time and do it more. You know, like yeah. I know every, everything you're talking about, you're doing a great, I, I think. And I think this comparison to sports where, you know, kids do own it. it. For me, that resonates. I think music might resonate for someone else, but for me, it's sports of like, this is on me to get better at. And this is where I want, what, what I'm shooting for. I mean, I remember being a swimmer and being able to tell you what time I wanted to get yeah. and how I was going to get there. Exactly. So I, I, I think you've totally resonated with me at least. Oh yeah. Great. Um, okay, but when you're thinking about, you know, for, for schools, how do you make that shift, right? You've, we've been grade systems forever, yeah. right? And I think I, I think most teachers would tell you that we are actually maybe in the one of the worst situations we've ever been in in schools where kids are not owning their learning, right? It's, yeah. you know, the parents, it's this, it's that, it's, it's all these other things. And so how can teachers, how can schools help their kids be able to be one of those people who can stand up and, and own their learning? Yeah, well... I mean, the, the nonprofit I work with, EL Education, works, it partners with about 150 schools right now. And at every one of those schools, and these are district public schools or charter public schools, and we don't own these schools. We're not a charter management organization. They're, we just partner with them to support their work. At every one of those schools, parent conferences are run by students. So students present to their families multiple times per year 
here's how I'm doing in mathematics, here's how I'm doing in reading, here's how I'm doing in history, here's how I'm doing in arts, here's examples of my work, here's work I'm very proud of. Here are the things I'm struggling with in all those areas. Here are my next steps. Here are the things, and then here's my character. Here are the things I'm doing well with in terms of treating others well, being a good friend, being a good citizen in my school. Here are the things where I've stepped back. Here are my transgressions in character. Here's where I've not been the best kind of person. And they present that to their parents, and then their parents can engage with them about how do we help you at home to be more of the person you want to be. And so people think, well, you can't do that at scale, but we're doing it at the scale of a district, right? I mean, we have more than 150 schools doing this every year, multiple times per year, kindergarten kids all the way up to 12th grade kids. And then they present to their communities at the end of the year, reflectively, where am I? What did I learn this year? How am I ready to move on? That's a level of ownership, which every school could use. It's not a tremendous shift. Like the book, Leaders of Their Own Learning, the one you mentioned, is a book about those kinds of structures. And to get ready for that, like the, the ELA curriculum, that the open source curriculum we built at EL, has those kinds of practices built into daily lessons where kids meet in a small group, they make sense of text, and then they present to the rest of the kids. This is what we think it means. Here's the content we learned from this. This is where. So kids get practice on a daily basis of speaking to other kids in class about what they're understanding and, and reflecting on their own learning, and they critique each other's learning. So I think this is all very possible without major disruption to our usual schools. I think, I think you're totally right. And I think I'm hoping that teachers are listening and hearing like, oh, a student could be doing the work to prepare for their own yeah. parent-teacher conference, right? It doesn't have to be all, all on me. And think about how much more productive that conversation is as someone who has been in a very ten- like tension-filled parent-teacher conference, I think a child being there as part of the presentation could have made all the difference. And, and we, we missed so many of those opportunities. I think that's a great call out and idea and, and super tangible. And I'm not surprised you have tangible ideas. And that's part of what I loved about leaders of their own learning is that it was like something I could easily implement in my school and in my, in my districts. Um, and so, and, and I think the reason you have all of that is because you have so much experience. So you started your career, am I right? As a teacher, like out of college, you went straight into teaching. Where did you teach? I, I live in a small rural town and I, I taught in the small rural town where I live. And it, it's, it's an interesting situation, Laura, because my town is so small, meaning no traffic lights, no stores, um, mostly dirt roads. I live on a dirt road that I was the only upper elementary teacher for a long time in this town, which means that pretty much everyone in my town is my former student. So, you know, my plumber is my former student. My nurse is my former student. Like the, the volunteer fire department, those are all my former students. So my life is, is in the hands of my former students, like literally in the hands of my former students. And so the fact that they have good character and, and work ethic really matters to me because they, these are the people I depend on in my small town. And I feel totally accountable to, did they did they develop into good human beings with good lives? Because every, everyone around me is my former student, basically. And I was there for more than 25 years. So, I thought it was funny that you started with like, you, you want them to be, have good characters, so your town is great. But I was sitting there thinking, yeah, you also need to be a pretty great teacher because you're going to see them every time you go out to dinner. Exactly. <laughs> or, that's, that's such a great story. So let me ask you this. So you spent 25 years teaching um, upper elementary in a rural school. And that, when you were listing off all the districts you work with now, many of them, I mean, Oakland is an urban district, yeah. lots of urban districts. The, learn, the things that you implemented and used in, rural, in your rural community 
are they transferable? Is there a huge shift to make them work in both places? Yeah. Well, uh, when I, the first book I wrote, An Ethic of Excellence, was written when I had been 25 years teaching in, in a rural community. And people said, wow, it's a very impressive book. I love the things you did with students, but you could never do that in an urban environment. Like it's because you were in this rural environment. Um, and they couldn't say because your kids were privileged because these kids are not wealthy and they, the school didn't have any money. I didn't make a good salary, but they could at least say, yes, but you, you are protected your way off in the middle of nowhere. It's not like in an urban district, it's too competitive. It's too intense. You can't do that kind of work. But 30 years ago, when I helped with the founding of Yale Education, almost all our work was urban. And the same kind of believing in kids' ability and giving them substantial, important work to do at any grade level right now worked equally well in urban settings. Like this idea that I don't know why people thought it couldn't work in an urban setting because, you know, we work with the, like the highest performing schools in many districts. Urban districts are schools that we work with. Because the, we've we've honored those kids with really challenging work and meaningful work, so I you know it the four hundred videos we've created over the last twenty years, most of them are urban kids of color presenting their own learning, like sharing their thinking, presenting to their families, presenting to their communities the great work they're doing. Um, it's interesting you say that. I, I was just at the Reading League conference and Kareem Weaver was the keynote at the beginning of the conference. And what he spoke about most was a mentor teacher he had who had made like the news and stuff because she believed that urban kids could like, basically that was like her whole yeah. thing was like, I'm pretty sure urban kids can learn. I think we can learn in inner city Chicago. And so yeah. we're going to go ahead and do that. And sure enough, they outperformed, outachieved many of their more affluent peers. And some of it was, She's like, I, I think her saying was something like, don't pray, don't, don't hope, teach. And yeah. She's like, I taught them like they could learn. So yeah, believe in their potential to be great. Exactly right. Okay. There are lots of teachers all over this country in rural and urban settings who are doing amazing things that they wish they could have more impact, which is exactly what you've done, right? You took what you did in your community and you've now spread it across the country through books and through curriculum. How, how does one make that shift? How did that happen for you? Well, I, I think for any great teachers that are your listeners right now, the important thing is to be documenting the work you're doing, documenting by collecting the work of students, by videotaping students, by collecting and, and photocopying their work in ways that you can then show and share evidence. The only evidence anyone seems to collect in this country are our test scores. Like, here's our evidence. Right. Who's collecting beautiful student writing? Who's collecting beautiful student science and mathematics work? I'd started doing that as soon as I started teaching because I had great models of fellow teachers. And by the time I did my graduate work, um, I was studying at Harvard Graduate School of Education with Howard Gardner, uh, who did the multiple intelligence work. And he had just written right. multiple intelligences. And um, I brought him my portfolio of work by my rural students. Like, and he, he looked at it and he said, I don't know anyone collects student work like this. Like you collect student work, like it's super valuable antiques that will be worth millions of dollars. Like the way you collect it in portfolios and treat it with such care. I'm really interested in that. And he encouraged me and his, his student, Steve Seidel worked with me on it. And I ended up teaching a course at Harvard around using student work to uh, improve teaching and learning. And I'm still collecting. We have a website called Models of Excellence that student work from all over the world. So I think the teachers that are listening right now, 
if you're doing great work with kids, start documenting it. Start videotaping those students, collecting their work, having examples that you can share with other teachers about what's possible. I think so many teachers underestimate what they're doing in the classroom. They think, you know, they see teachers pay teachers and all those other things that everyone is doing it. And I think you're saying something so beautiful that there, there is a very good chance if something inside of you is telling you that what you have might be magic, you might be right and you should collect it and keep it and share it. You said the word document, um, which obviously you mean collecting student work, but I'm assuming that you also like, did you journal? Did you like, what did you keep of yourself during this time that you could offer to a book later? Oh yeah, I absolutely journaled and took notes. And uh, I mean, I tried to understand practices that were working or not working. And so as a teacher, you're always trying things that don't work well. And, and you always have to keep track of which lesson strategies, which structures, which protocols you have that are working well and which are not, and how do you improve on them? And, and having artifacts from all of that, the artifacts like the student work or like the videotapes of students or photographs of the, the things that you've created. Um, and I think studying our work to get better at it is something that we don't talk about a lot in America, but it's really important to do. Is well, Our it, practice needs to be studied and improved. It's so interesting to consider like the difference between keeping student work an essay or something. And then also when you think about standardized state tests, which I think you've given some shade to today, um, you know, teachers aren't even allowed to look at the questions, right? You see the questions two years later, this kid is gone. It's like yeah. they've gone on to middle school when you finally get to see the question that they got wrong. Um, how, how, like, it's almost impossible to study that, right? But student work that's sitting in front of you, that is, is an artifact you can study and learn from and dig deeper into. And I think it's super undervalued. And so I appreciate you saying that. Um, when you, you went to Harvard, when, and you're, you're teaching, you taught for 25 years and then was it at the end of that time that you went to Harvard or I, I went and did my graduate work at Harvard after about 15 years okay. in the classroom and then returned to teaching for another 10 years and collected even more <laughs> work and documented my work even more and wrote a few books when I was doing that while I was teaching. Um, and I know people feel like no one cares about anything about test scores, but it's not true because parents care about their kids becoming great human beings who do great things that they're really proud of. And when I started having documentation, photographs of students and their work and telling those stories, it was really meaningful to educators and parents around the country to see the story of you, Laura, as a kid and then what happened to you. And I've been in public education 47 years. So I can show pictures like you as a fifth grader and then you as a college student and then you as a teacher because I actually know these students as people. And so I have photographs of them through time, but I also have artifacts of their work. So you can see how they became great human beings and great citizens and produce great things in the world because they people believed, we believed in them and their capacity to do great work. And stories matter. So for teachers listening, like get those stories of the kids that are making great progress because people care about stories. They really do because all of our own kids are our, our stories on their own. That's, I think, lovely. And I'm already like in my mind, I, my children, I have tw three-year-old twins. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, how am I going to do a better job just even in my own home, not necessarily in my classroom, but in my home of collecting their story for them of yes. all the beautiful things that they've done. Exactly. I think that's really lovely. Um, let me ask you this. So, so you went back to the classroom for 10 years, you collected more materials. Like when did you realize you had something special to offer around student learning and the way we interact with children and the way that we promote both academics and social emotional learning? 
Well, I was very fortunate when I went to Harvard and worked with Howard Gardner that he took me under his wing and Steve Seidel, his colleague, took me under their wing. And I ended up teaching with Steve there for eight years or so, a, a course around using student work to improve teaching and learning. And with their support, I wrote a few books that ended up being, and they're still in print, they're still doing well. So I realized I can, the stories I've been collecting and the student work I've been collecting is something I can give back that I can share practices and collect more practices. And while I was at Harvard, the, the organization, the Yale Education, was formed at Harvard. It used to be called Expeditionary Learning Outward okay. Bound, and it was formed at Harvard. And so I helped with getting that started. And I consulted with EL Education, which is now called for 10 years while I was still teaching, and then left 20 years ago to work full-time for the nonprofit uh, that I work for now, and it's grown a lot. Uh, you know, we used to be a small yeah. group of people. Now it's more than 200 people. Um, and we used to reach thousands of kids. Now we're reaching more than a million students. But for me, it was just the logical, how can I contribute more? I think that's the question so many people ask. All right, let me ask you one more thing about Yale education. And then I'm going to ask you a little bit about what you hope for the future. So um, like you said, you were there for 20 years um, and watched the company grow. What are you most proud of from Yale education? Um, I, I'm most proud of seeing graduates from schools or students in our schools now who have become our best spokespeople for this vision. So we have a national conference, Laura, every year, about 1500 educators from around the world come to the conference and our keynote speakers are kids. Like our keynote speakers are fifth graders and seventh graders and 11th graders who are so compelling, so inspiring. I, I do keynote speaking. I could never be as strong <laughs> as these kids. They're so real. They're so heartfelt. They're so passionate. They're, they're so eloquent. And they tell stories of, of becoming smart to do good in the world, of, of acts of social justice that are connected to their academic learning. And I, that's, that makes me incredibly proud. The stories of how those kids, what, how those kids have grown and gone on. I mean, the thing that I'm best known in the education world is actually a six minute video, Austin's butterfly, a video of kids critiquing each other's work. And it's been seen millions of times. So when I travel, people mostly think, oh, you're the butterfly guy, right? You were in that butterfly <laughs> video. That's how most people know who I am. And I say, yes, I'm proud that I was talking about a first grade piece of work with a bunch of kids. And that was useful enough that it's been seen millions of times. But I also can tell them what the kids in that video are doing today. Um, because I think it makes me very proud that one of the little kids in that video became a keynote speaker for us when he was in high school. Wow. And he's a refugee from Sudan, you know, and he got up in front of 1200 people and talked about his family's journey from war-torn Sudan and, and how he, uh, has made it in the United States and is trying to give back to the country and become a great person. So yeah, that's what makes me most proud. Seeing kids live that out. It's fun watching you light up as you talk about it too. You know, when we, before this episode, we were talking about the kids on the wall behind you overall and the work that you're collecting yeah. from them in those pictures. And then here you are talking about children and you just like, it's like your whole face changes. I don't know if anyone's ever pointed, I'm sure they have, they've told you this yeah. before. It's been, it was really fun. It's interesting because I, as I told you earlier, I've been reading a lot of your work lately and 
I wouldn't say, or a lot of your old work too. And I wouldn't say you necessarily come off always so hopeful and joyful as you do when you're talking about children. Yeah. And so I have to ask, as you um, are in this moment in your career, when you've done so many things and you can look back, but you can also look forward. When you look forward, what gives you the most hope for our students and what, what excites you the most right now? Um, it, it's interesting that you point out that difference because I can be very critical of the education bureaucracy and where our values are and what we're investing in in education, which is, you know, we generally invest in accountability um, rather than investing in teacher quality. And we generally invest in systems rather than in things that will um, inspire kids to be their best selves. But I'm always optimistic when I think of kids because I think kids have unlimited potential. Like there's tremendous, genius is spread everywhere among children. And I think that's the good news is that you can't not be excited when you start talking to kids because kids have that tremendous potential everywhere I go that's untapped. I think we really vastly underestimate what kids can do. And um, where am I hopeful in the future? I think, um, I'm hoping, Laura, that we had a wake-up call when, as a nation, we invested pretty much only in accountability with No Child Left Behind high-stakes testing without investing in teachers, without investing in teacher quality and instructional quality deeply, in high-quality instructional materials or in teaching practices. And it didn't work that well. A lot of people say, oh, well, test scores got better, but they're looking at state test scores, which, which you cannot trust. Every state has different metrics. Every state has a, their own testing system and they change their benchmarks for proficiency and not. The only thing I trust are NAEP and PISA scores. And in NAEP and PISA, the United States got no better throughout all of that time. We were flat or went down. And so we actually, all that invested in a billions, trillions of dollars in high accountability didn't actually make us perform better in the world academically. And I think some people are waking up to the fact that only focusing on accountability and testing didn't work for us. We need to invest in high quality instructional materials and in high quality instructional practices and in a school culture where kids feel like they belong and they're believed in. And I think that people are coming around a bit to that. And I think the pandemic also made people feel like if kids don't feel like they belong, if kids don't feel emotionally and mentally healthy, if they don't feel like school's a place where they're going to succeed, their heart won't be in it and they're not going to do well. And so more and more schools and districts are thinking the social and emotional health of our kids has to be on our plate. That we, we don't have a choice about teaching character. We're already doing it all day long, but we should do it well. And, and so I think people are remembering that in life, we're not judged by test scores. We're judged by the kind of work we do and the kind of human beings we are. And we need to be supporting schools to create students who are good human beings who have great pride in the quality of the work they do, not just in, in exam scores. Ron, I have to tell you, you must be an epic optimist because what you just told me was what, what you find hope in is like, we did the wrong thing for like 20 years. We spent a ton of money on it. So now we're ready to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I love that about you. <laughs> It's yeah. true. I think it's great. I think that's a great optimism. And I think it's, and I think it's a really good point that just because we did the wrong thing doesn't mean we can't learn now. Right. right? It's right. never too late to do better. And, and doing the wrong thing doesn't mean that all assessments are wrong that, you know, that we should never have tests that we shouldn't have state. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying when that becomes the sole way schools, teachers and kids are measured. And when that becomes almost the only way that we invest as a nation, 
into accountability. It's just accountability for that reductionist vision. And it doesn't align in any way with what matters in real life. I mean, what matters in real life are, are capable people who are good human beings that do good work. Like that, if we just accepted, we're getting kids ready to be citizens and people uh, and workers, like what do they need for that? It's not the same as just test-taking skills. That's totally true. And I think you lead me really well to our um, five questions that we ask every single guest because we're getting low on time. Although I could sit here and listen to you talk and get goosebumps all day long. And it's really lovely. I will tell you the one thing I'm going to walk away with written down is how important it is to have academic kindness. I'm going to start, you said those two words and that is going like going to stick with me. So thank you so much. And you were just saying that the, you know, kids have to have like what, what they need for life is more than just test scores, which is interesting because our first question for our rapid fire is the title of the podcast is more than a test, but every guest hears something different when we call it more than a test. When you saw the title, what did you think of? Um, uh, more than a test, I immediately thought that's great because there are so many ways in which we can collect evidence of the great capacities our students have that aren't tests. And so when you think of yourself as a swimmer or someone, if, you, if your kids end up studying drama and being in plays or being in an orchestra or being in a chorus or writing the school newspaper or being in the debate club, the idea that you would ever measure them by a test, a written test versus their performance, what they can actually do, you'd think that's nuts. But that's what we've cleaved to as a nation. And so I love the idea that there's all kinds of evidence of our competence and our brilliance that are not related to a written exam. That's awesome and perfect. Um, okay, the second question is, we want you to tell us about a literary moment in your life. And what we mean by our lit moment is a time of you and a book that is either your happy place or changed your life. So um, tell us your lit moment. Um, when I wrote my first book, An Ethic of Excellence, um, it sold really well. And so I was asked to do um, readings, like bookstore readings or event readings. And so I said yes. And then I found the students who were featured in the stories of the book and brought them and had them read the parts about themselves rather than me reading those parts. Because I thought, why should I be reading about the great things they did when they could be reading about the great things they did? And it was just such a treat to be able to turn the microphone over to students who could proudly talk about their own work because the stories were really about them. That is so beautiful. I can't remember who it was, but someone was on our podcast and once said, once said, you know, in life, you should be trying to win the humility award. And I just want to say like, that's what that feels like to me is the, the humility you have to share your spotlight moment with the kids that made it happen is just so beautiful. So thank you. Um, our next question, a piece of technology you love. Huh? Um, oh, piece of technology. I love, I, I would not say that I am a I have very mixed relationship with technology um, because I see it doing great good. And I also see, I really worry about walking around the world and every person I see is not looking at the world, but they're on their phone. Like everywhere I am, people are not even looking up at each other. They're on their phone. It's a scary thing to me. And I worry about what it's doing to our psyches as human beings. Um, however, um, the fact that almost all the music ever written is something I can instantly get and listen to anytime I want versus when I was a kid and I'd have to go down and save up money to buy a 45 
record and and then on the radio you had to wait until a disc jockey happened to play the <laughs> song you really wanted to hear it's great to have all the beauties of all the music ever written just available anytime you want anywhere you are that's a very nice gift what's the last song that you pulled up on your phone or device huh um i i have it's embarrassing i have like a lot of pandora stations or spotify ones that often lead me back to my same old-fashioned <laughs> 1960s and 70s R&B soul music, Aretha, Al Green, uh, Stylistics, Temptations, Four Tops. Like I, whatever song I start with, I end up coming to the same place of music that I grew up with that I just love so much. Oh, that's awesome. All right. The best advice you've ever been given? Huh. Um, I had a a mentor who was, when I was teaching elementary school, he was a geology professor and I had my students testing the water in my town, both the surface water and the well water to make sure it was safe and safe enough for animals and safe enough for people to drink. We also tested people's air in their homes for radon gas. So my students had to go to his geology lab at the university to do the testing. And he had to have his university students teach my fifth and sixth graders how to run the mass spectrometer, for example. And every time I worried that, well, I don't know if fifth graders can run an inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer. His attitude was, if they, like, what would make you think they're not capable of doing this? Like, if, if there was a new video game and I was to ask you, Who's going to learn it faster, this fifth grader or you? What would you say? And I'd say, absolutely the fifth grader. And say, this, this inductively coupled plasma spectrometer, how is that different? Like, why do you think your 10 and 11-year-olds can't learn how to do adult-level science right away if they're invested in it? And I thought, that's exactly right. Like, why would I ever assume they're not capable of doing great things like that? I really love that. Um, and I think that's really true about all kids, right? Like, why do you assume they can't do it? I think is fabulous advice. Last question. One book you think everyone should read? Um, I'm going to give you a very rogue answer, Laura, which is that it's a book that's not out yet. But I have a good friend um, who is uh, David Yeager. He's a psychologist at the University of Texas, Austin. He is has a manuscript that's getting close to being done about how to motivate adolescents, um, which is the premise of the book is that adolescents are motivated by respect and by status. And we try to get tough with them and it doesn't work. We baby them and it doesn't work. But if we mentor them in ways that we treat them respectfully and present things to them that will help their status among their peers, they're capable of amazing things. And uh, it's a beautiful framework that I've been a critique partner with him on this book. And I can't wait for him to finish it so I can send it to everybody because we've made really big mistakes in teaching, but also in parenting and in hiring. Like he, he considers adolescents age 10 to age 25. In fact, the, the working title of his book is 10 to 25. And, and I think we think if we get tough with kids and just tell them the rules, that will help. Or if we just protect them enough, they won't make bad decisions. And none of that really works. And, and he has great research to back that up. But he also has research to back up what does work. 
I'm sure it's going to be out soon, but even if it's not, please let him know. My children are three. I need it before they're 10. Okay. Like <laughs> you have to get done. I, just, I, I learned this every day with my toddlers, right? I have three-year-old yeah. twins and any day that I am like laying down the law is a terrible day. But any day that like I'm setting up them for expectations and like, here's what we're going to do. Here's how it's going to go is a fabulous day. And it's all dependent on whether or not I can like yeah. trust them enough to like get on board with us and we're all going to do it together, yeah. you know? And so I, I, mean, I think I, I'll, this, I mean, this will probably not stay. It'll get edited out, but I just need to share with you one quick example from his book. He uses an example of research he did around donor around recipients of organs like heart recipients and, and kidney recipients and when someone receives a new heart or receives a new kidney they have to take immunosuppressant drugs multiple times per day so that their body does not reject the new organ and the data on the age groups for which that tends to work and doesn't work is really crazy because you'd think older people people in their 70s 80s 90s it might have the biggest failure rate because their health complications are much. But the ages in which it doesn't work are, are the adolescent ages. And they realize the reason it doesn't work with adolescents is they don't take their medications when they're supposed to. Wow. And you think this is not just a question of like brush your teeth or do your homework. This is like you will not live if you don't do this. And kids still don't do it. And when you try to figure out why, they're like, I'm tired of my mother nagging me and telling me what to do. And what does it make a big difference if I take my medication at two or four? And I don't like doing it in front of my friends because I feel stupid. And I just went through all these operations. So why do I, I don't want my life to be more miserable. And so they're making bad choices because they're trying to scare these kids into taking it. If you don't take your medication, this, if you don't take it, you know, he used a different approach. It's like, what if you separate those kids from their moms and dads? And you say, let me tell you about the person who gave you their heart. Wow. You are taking the responsibility for that person's heart. And you could treat that responsibility well, which I believe you will, because I totally believe in you. And I think you're going to take your meds all the time. Or you can not treat that well. This person died. You have their heart or their kidney. We believe in you. We think you will be responsible and take your meds on time. I'm not telling your mom this. I'm telling you this because I believe in you. Those kids take their meds on time. I mean, it's such an important shift. Um, I feel like, again, goosebumps, yeah. but also I'm like, all right, how can I redo this for with my own children? Even like, where can I yeah. let them be responsible? It makes so much sense. And it is so hard without those tangible examples. I'm so right. glad we're ending on this. I'm so glad you shared this. It's helping me as a mother. I'm sure there are middle school teachers listening that it's going to be huge for. I can't wait for the book to come out. Um, tell him soon though. <laughs> and thank you for your time today. Across the board, this conversation has yeah. been great and powerful for me as a parent, for all of our educators. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for indulging me in my stories and my um, passion for all of this. I really appreciate the chance to share. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.